to Based on a True Crime Story, a podcast where we cover the events of a true crime and then talk about the movie that's based upon it. And this is a comedy podcast that will pay deference to the victims involved. So just know that going in. Indeed. And this week we cover the murder of Teresa Taylor and the custody dispute that goes along with that which also became a TV movie called In a Child's Name, starring Valerie Bertinelli. Because Andrea has a thing for Valerie Bertinelli. Don't judge me. I don't care. <laughs> she is a phenomenal actress, and her made-for-TV movies are phenomenal. Phenomenon was a good movie. No, it wasn't. What? I don't like that movie. All right. Sorry. <sighs> anyway, so this week, as you guys know, generally one of us watches the movie, the other one does the case so i'm in charge of the case this week kelly watched the movie all like 47 hours of it <laughs> so my references this week um really there was really only one and that was the article from the new york times magazine called legacy of a mother's murder written by peter moss he also wrote a book um in the same name called in a child's name regarding the same case so that's pretty much my source for the uh, story this week and the the story or so this kind of picks up first um like kind of starting with the the custody part of it is where the the article kind of started um and then segues into the the crime the crime so the new jersey superior court on september 19 1985 was pretty explicit um Philip Andrew Taylor, 15 months old, would be in the custody of his deceased mother's sister and her husband from September 1st of each year to June 30th of the following year. And then from July 1st through August 31st of each year, custody went to the infant's paternal grandparents. Uh, Janice Miller, who was a tough-minded 44-year-old New Jersey lawyer with fine-boned features and short curly blonde hair, wasn't really enthralled with some of the qualifying language in that order. Essentially, the bottom line was there in black and white, though. That, of course, all happened before she got the case. Um, a case that not only involved a grisly homicide in a child's future, but turned up dark undercurrents of ethnic and religious hostility of rural versus urban America. For Miss Miller, this all started for her June 10th of 1986, when she received a call from a woman who identified herself as Celeste White from Staten Island, New York. And she sp she was speaking in a very urgent and panicky tone. And Mrs. White said that she had to see Miss Miller immediately. Claimed that she was the sister of Teresa Taylor, whose husband had so brutally murdered her. And Miss Miller remembered that, um, seeing the case in the news, Miss Miller did not go into any detail, but she recalled from local news reports that Dr. Kenneth Taylor a dentist who lived nearby in a in prosperous Manalapan township had been convicted of bludgeoning his wife to death eight months earlier. Mrs. White explained that the custody arrangements involving the couple's son um, said that psychological evaluations had shown that visitation rights accorded the maternal grandparents or the paternal grandparents should be drastically modified, and time was really running out. The custody schedule hearing was scheduled for a week. Miss um, Miller had grown that she really had a full caseload and hadn't really retained, hadn't Celeste retained other lawyers in the past? Yes, um, Celeste replied, 
two of them at different times, as a matter of fact, but they weren't forceful enough. And she wanted somebody that really would fight, and she felt that Janice Miller was the one for her. Do they talk about how she actually wanted a, well, at least in the movie, mm-hmm. she says she wanted a woman. Yes. Um, it didn't really state that per se, but um, I remember that part. So they also, so anyway, um, so Celeste and Jeff White, um, they hired Miss um, Miller. They arrived in her office on June 13th. She, Celeste was a small woman with chestnut hair framing, framing her strikingly luminous gray eyes. Celeste spoke with the same rapid intensity as before. Her husband, a muscular, square-faced man, was composed as his wife was kinetic. He worked as a marine oiler on the ferries between Staten Island and Manhattan, and he earned about $25,000 a year. Interspersed with tears, Celeste took three hours to tell the entire story, um, and Miss Miller later cooperated through court and law enforcement records. Celeste and her sister, two years older, were the daughters of Louise and Albert Benigno, and their father taught drafting at Vocational High School in Brooklyn. The daughters were really close. They shared the same room in their teens. Um, they also had a younger brother, Philip. Um, her sister, Celeste said, was the green-eyed family beauty, smart, ambitious, anxious to move up in life, whereas Celeste had married Jeff shortly after finishing high school. Teresa had gone to Brooklyn College for two years to get a license as a dental hygienist. In 1981, her first job in a Brooklyn clinic, she met and subsequently fell in love with Dr. Kenneth Taylor, a dentist who had been at the clinic for about a year following his discharge as a Navy lieutenant. Taylor was from Marion, Indiana, 65 miles north of Indianapolis, and he was a solid six-foot guy with a slightly receding hairline and an air of quiet confidence. He was also 10 years older than Teresa and in the middle of a divorce. So the divorce business bothered Teresa's mother and also in the woolable Sicilian warmth of the Benigno family, Taylor's cool reserve seemed really out of place and he made little effort to hide a general disdain for New York and New Yorkers. But these were hardly major objections to the relationship. Teresa said that he was the most intelligent man he had ever, she had ever met. On the positive side, um, Ken Taylor announced that he was going to practice at two offices in Staten Island and he would even hire Philip um, as his office manager. Brother, the right? brother, yes. And although Teresa was raised Roman Catholic, Ken insisted on a Protestant ceremony when they got married on July 10th, 1983. Catholics don't like that. Uh, she was 23. The only odd note that um, was that Ken Taylor's younger brother, who was supposed to have been his best man, didn't even bother to come. So Philip, the brother, their brother, filled in. Two of Taylor's colleagues from the dental clinic attended, as did his parents, Gene and Everett, both who were active members of Marion's First Baptist Church, and his grandmother. Two other wedding guests, uh, Jean Taylor, just seemed uncomfortably uptight, while her husband, an RCA industrial engineer, was more gregarious. The happy couple immediately flew off for a honeymoon in Acapulco, and a week afterwards, um, Louise and Albert drove to Kennedy Airport to greet them, but nobody got off the plane. An airline representative said their return tickets had not been validated. Stunned, the Benignos drove home, and when Albert got through the Las Brias Hotel, he was told that Dr. and Mrs. Taylor had checked out the previous Thursday and that there had been some trouble, and Mrs. Taylor was hospitalized. It wasn't until Monday morning that Albert finally was able to reach an official at the American Consulate, and hours more before he learned that his daughter had been savagely beaten and that her husband was being held by Mexican police as her assailant. 
Celeste and her father flew to Acapulco on Tuesday, July 19th, and at the hospital, she was barely able, able to stifle a scream when she saw her sister. The only way that she could recognize her sister was by her hair. Her eyes were puffy slits, and one side of her face was completely swollen, um, along with bandages covering wounds, flecks with shards of glass. Another bandage covered a deep slash in her neck caused by the jagged edge of a broken bottle, and all of her teeth were broken. Ken Taylor was sitting by her bed, holding her hand, explained that intruders had broken into their hotel room while they were asleep, and he had tried to fend them off, but was knocked out, and when he came to, found his battered wife on the floor. He had been arrested, but that was simply a shakedown by corrupt Mexican police, and as soon as he directed them to $500 he had secreted in his suitcase, he was freed. Only much later did the Benignos learn that Taylor had been considered the prime suspect because, among other things, he admitted to taking a shower to wash off the blood covering him before telephoning the front desk for help and that he was released after Teresa refused to press charges. And because they did nothing to him. Right. He was just naturally knocked out while they kicked the crap out of his wife. Yeah. Yes. Likely story. All Teresa knew um, that she, she told Celeste was that she had gone to sleep in the hotel and she woke up in the hospital. On Wednesday, July 20th, they all flew home, and during the flight, Celeste sat at Teresa's feet, constantly wiping her drooling mouth. Celeste said later that Ken Taylor kept feeding her sister Valium and taking it himself. He said, she said that he tried to offer some to her, saying, come on, you need it, we've all had a tough time. Teresa was removed from the plane in a wheelchair and spent two weeks in a Staten Island hospital. For another month, she then recuperated at her parents' home. Despite the suspicions that her parents harbored, Teresa insisted, especially to Celeste, you're wrong. Ken could not have done this. He loves me. As the scars on Teresa's face begin to fade, so did the family's memory of the incident. It was like a bad dream that nobody wanted to recall. Teresa proudly announced that her husband had bought a two-story house with a pool in Manalapan Township, and then she revealed even grander news. She was pregnant, and nobody knew, though, at that time that Ken Taylor had urged his wife to have an abortion. There was more excitement, though, when six months into Teresa's pregnancy, Celeste said that she, too, was going to have a baby. And the two sisters reveled in their new bond. The only jarring moment Celeste could remember uh, occurred while they were shopping together one afternoon. And Teresa looked at her watch and said, oh, my God, i got to go home. And Celeste said, well, we're having fun. Just call Ken and tell him you'll be late. Teresa turned white-faced and said no and drove off. And at the time, it only left Celeste feeling guilty about being inconsiderate of her own husband. Philip Andrew Taylor, blue-eyed and blonde, was born on June 11, 1984. Celeste, or Teresa told her sister Celeste, you don't know what love is until you have a baby. Three months after the baby's birth, Taylor and Taylor insisted that his wife go back to work. His practice was not doing well, he said, and they had to commonize. During the day, Teresa would leave little Philip in her mother's care, and on Sundays, the custom was for everyone to gather at her parents' house for a festive Italian meal, but on Saturday, November 11th, Teresa called and said that she and Ken would instead be visiting a friend the next day. Sometime late that Saturday night or early Sunday morning, Ken Taylor murdered his wife, smashing in the back of her head at least nine times with a 20-pound barbell. Telephone toll records would show that between midnight and 5.48 a.m. Sunday, 26 calls were made from Taylor's home to pornographic message services in California and brothels in New York. 900 numbers, basically. Mm -hmm. And although he did his best to remove any traces of what had happened, forensic experts would discover evidence of a 55-foot trail of blood in the house as Taylor dragged Teresa's body 
to the garage and deposited it in the trunk of her car. Um, he then placed five-month-old Philip in the front seat and drove to the home of his parents in Indiana. On Monday morning, an astonished Louise Benigno learned from Taylor where he and Andrew were. He told her he had dropped Teresa off at a Newark airport at her insistence because she had a bad drug habit and was going to a rehab center to clean up her act, he said. Teresa wouldn't tell him where the center was. With Teresa's wife, or with Teresa's body still in the trunk of his car, Taylor drove next to Pittsburgh to see his ex-wife on the occasion of their daughter's fifth birthday. Afterward, in central Pennsylvania, he dumped the body in a wildlife bird sanctuary. On Wednesday, he arrived at the Big Nigno home, and over a sandwich, he told Louise, I love you, Mom. I love Teresa. I don't understand why she was on drugs or why she left us. He then reported her missing to the police later that day and accompanied Celeste and Jeff to the Newark airport where he drove through the motion, went through the motions of showing photographs um, of Teresa to airport personnel. He then drove back to his ex-wife's house in Pittsburgh. Celeste and Jeff then went to the police themselves, voicing their worst fears and reported the assault, the assault from Mexico on Teresa. Later on that Thursday, a hiker discovered Teresa's body. And on Friday, Albert Benigno and his son identified her. Um, Philip, her brother, was very was barely able to stand up after he reached down um, to cradle her, and his hand had gone right through the back of his sister's crush. Still sticking to his story, Taylor voluntarily went to the police and allowed his house to be searched. And while interrogation continued, a bloody earring belonging to his wife was found in the garage. Confronted with this, suddenly he said he would tell he would tell the uh, disgraceful truth that he had been hiding to protect the family name. Graceful is right. Uh-huh. So he said he woke up Sunday morning and walked downstairs to find his wife performing fellatio on their infant son. Okay. He tried to intervene, but crazed by cocaine, Teresa attacked him with a barbell. He managed to grab it, and he gave it to her. He then stopped talking, and he wanted a lawyer. During Taylor's trial for murder, Benignos learned that he had actually been married three times. He had left his first wife in Indiana while she was pregnant and had never seen her since. Um, according to the first assistant Monmouth County prosecutor, Paul Chiat, the first wife said Taylor had used drugs during their marriage. Visitors to the Taylor's home testified that Taylor often used cocaine and that Teresa had taken some on occasion. The toxicologist, though, reported that while a minute trace of cocaine residue was found in her body, it was nowhere near the amount that would be required to cause the drug craze aggression that he had, that Taylor had described. Wait, you mean it's possible he was lying? I know, shocking. Mm. So Ken Taylor was found guilty of murder, and on October 4th, 1985, he was sentenced to serve a minimum of 30 years without parole. But the agony of Philip Andrew Taylor, his ultimate victim, had just begun. The documents that the Whites had given... Uh, Miss Miller showed that immediately after his arrest, Kenneth Taylor's parents came to his Manalapan home with Philip. Two weeks later, with indications that the Taylors had intended to return with Philip to Indiana, the whites had turned to the courts. A Monmouth County judge ordered that the infant remain in New Jersey under a shared custody arrangement. Um, he would be with the whites three days a week and his grandparents the other time. After Taylor's conviction, though, order was modified to give whites give the whites an extra day and a court appointed psychologist was directed to evaluate the situation as a means of move, moving forward to a final custody resolution the psychologist reported that while the whites and the tailors both appeared to be loving and nurturing and supportive financial 
supportive parental figures, it was a crucial bonding period for Philip that the Whites were active, energetic parents who could provide Philip with a very child-oriented lifestyle and that it was in his best interest to be placed in their custody. Temporary legal guardian was, was appointed by the state, and they also echoed this view, noting that the Taylors would be in their 70s when Philip entered high school and that the Whites now had, the da had a daughter six months younger than Philip, which established a whole family environment. A court order was issued giving the Whites custody of Philip, who was t um, which was 10 months out of the year, and his grandparents, the other two in Indiana. On a motion by the Taylors, the order was amended to allow them an overnight visitation with Philip for three days during Thanksgiving and a week more at Christmas. Um, however, real trouble, well, the other thing that was kind of bizarre was that um, Celeste had to accept a call once a week to Philip yeah. uh, from his father, Ken Taylor, once a month, and that the wife had to bring Philip to see his father at the prison in New Jersey. Yeah. Ugh. But the real trouble began for the Whites when they discovered that during the Thanksgiving visitation, the grandparents had taken Philip on, a, on successive days to see his father. Another psychologist retained by the Whites said they had strongly recommended that Philip not visit Mr. Taylor in prison, emphasizing that Taylor could not be the primary caretaker for the next 30 years, and visitation would really only confuse Philip and cause identity problems. The Whites, who were residing in Staten Island, petitioned New York, the New York courts to take over the case, thus, thus successfully thwarting the Christmas visitation by the Taylors. But a New York court ruled that under Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction Act, adhered to by all 50 states, New Jersey had the custodial authority, which is how Miss Miller came into the case, and she began the efforts to have the Taylors' visitation rights reduced. Miss Miller saw problems right away. Well, although there was nothing underhanded about the way the New York courts had been petitioned, she was certain that a New Jersey Superior Court um, really wasn't going to be amused. And the Whites had also failed to pay $500 in counsel fees that had been awarded to the attorney hired by the Taylors to contest the New York petition and to post a $2,000 bond in regards to Philip's custody. In fact, they, the fact that they couldn't afford it really wasn't going to cut much, cut much ice. Um, near the end of July, the custodial hearing drew to a close. Ms. Miller figured that she could have the judge leaning towards her clients. Of crucial importance was the testimony of the original court-appointed psychologist, who reiterated even stronger that Philip should not even really spend one night away from the wife. On August 1st, both parties and their attorneys present in an agreement, um, the judge read the final custody order based on the proposition um, the proposed settlement, and that night, Celeste placed Philip in the front seat of their camper with the Taylors um, that had arrived from Indiana and said to have a wonderful time with his grandparents and that she'd see him soon. So basically, it was like 10 months and then two months. So he was going to go spend the two months with the grandparents. Relieved that it was all over, um, Janice Miller turned to other cases. On August 6th, though, she was trying to sleep. She gave up in exasperation. Um and said that she just didn't know what was wrong with her. She just felt like something was off. That morning at 9.30, as spooky as it sounded, even to her, she had found out what was going on. Celeste was calling in hysterics, and she had just spoken to Philip's grandmother in Marion, Indiana, to work out the logistics for the court-ordered visit that she and Jeff would be making the next day. Jean told her, don't bother. He adopted Philip, and you're never going to see him again. Miss Miller stared at the phone in disbelief before she said, I'll get back to you. Then she tracked down the Grant County Circuit Judge in Marion, Thomas Hunt, who had signed the adoption decree and told him about the New Jersey custody order. 
Hunt sounded, seemed astounded. As soon as she got him a copy of the order, he said he would rescind the adoption. She tore off to judge the judge's chambers, and he couldn't believe the news either. Late that afternoon, Miss Miller met with Celeste and Jeff at the Newark airport to fly to Indiana with the order. But plane after plane was delayed because of bad weather. Finally, around 10 o'clock, they boarded one for Chicago. The ride was nightmarish, and Celeste bent over moaning, why did I ever let him go? A white knuckled Jeff held her as the plane buckled through wind drafts. It was his first ever flight. They all reached Marion around noon on Friday, August 8th, and at the courthouse, Miss Miller was told that Hunt had gone fishing for the weekend and was unreachable. She located the attorney for the county welfare department and explained the problem. The attorney helped Miss Miller prepare an order placing Philip in temporary foster care until they got a second Marion judge to sign it. Ms. Miller and the Whites went to the welfare attorney, caseworker, and deputy sheriff to the Taylor home to pick up Philip that evening. It almost looked as if the deputy was going to have to break down the door before Everett Taylor opened it and said he was calling his lawyer. The welfare attorney brought Philip out and handed him to the caseworker. Um, Celeste, standing to one side with Jeff, called him baby, baby, and Philip reached towards her and said, mommy. The Taylor's attorney, Patrick Ryan roared up, tires squealing. He ran after the caseworker who had locked the doors, rolled up the windows, and sped off before he could get Philip away from her. At the welfare center, Miss Miller was impressed with the family selected to care for Philip, but after he was taken away, Celeste collapsed, crying, and Jeff finally lost his composure. Why can't we do something? He said, this isn't Russia. Uh, with the situation apparently, apparently unreasonable hold, Miss Miller and the Whites flew home where the Whites got the van it originally intended to use to pick up Philip and drove back to Marion to await invalidation of their adoption decree. But Monday morning, there was two more thunderbolts. First, the judge who had signed the order putting Philip in temporary foster care canceled it without comment, which meant that Philip was going to be returned to the Taylors. And then minutes later, in the same courthouse, Judge Hunt, who had signed the adoption decree, withdrew from the case, effectively keeping Philip in Indiana. Consensus of the Marion lawyers who lunched daily at the Knobby Grill a block from the courthouse is that Hunt had stepped all over himself on this one and recused himself out of embarrassment. Hunt himself has been quoted saying that he was blindsided by Patrick Ryan. And indeed, the adoption petition and subsequent decree were artfully crafted by Ryan, who, like the Taylors, was a member of their church. And the petition filed in Indiana on January 17, 1986, while the Taylors were going through that charade of... A shared custody fight in New Jersey simply put, simply said that Philip's mother was deceased and without providing any explanation of the circumstances, you know, like the father had murdered him. The father gave permission um, with no mention of his current residence, namely, you know, the state penitentiary, which would have, of course, raised some questions and that the child had no property, no family, even though he had a $130,000 trust fund and, of course, a whole family in New Jersey. The actual decree dated August 7th acknowledged that a custody proceeding was pending in New Jersey without mentioning that it had already been ruled on and accepted by the parties. The adoption slipped right by Judge Hunt like a hot knife going through butter, a Marion lawyer said. He probably didn't even read it before he signed it. Now, Philip Andrew Taylor, as a person, began to, to disappear inex inexorably in a legal thicket of motions, briefs, and appeals. And Kenneth Taylor unsuccessfully tried to escape from prison. Way to go him. He was, of course, then transferred to a Virginia correctional institution instead. And an enraged Paul Shyatt, who had prosecuted Taylor, sought a criminal extradition warrant for Dean and Everett Taylor for defying the New Jersey custody order. New Jersey Governor Thomas Keene signs a warrant, as did Indiana Governor Robert Orr, 
Um, but with November elections coming up and a hearing on extradition was held by um, held on the last of Marion's three judges, the courtroom was packed with the First Baptist Church, and they the governor ended up withdrawing the warrant for further investigation. Uh, December 18th that year, the judge from another county held a hearing on the validity of the adoption. A significant exchange took place between Everett Taylor and Richard Green, who was a hard-nosed local lawyer who Janice Miller had brought into the case. So Peter Moss had basically said that he knew Gene Taylor was saying that Indiana was a much better place for Philip to grow up than New York's fast New York, New Jersey. Um, she also had subscribed to her son's versions of the events of the murder. And so she just felt that being with his family or being child being with her family was just, you know, a technicality essentially because he belonged with his grandparents. At the time of the writing, the Indiana Attorney General's office um, stated that the investigation on the extradition warrant was coming and a spokesman admitted that there hadn't been an investigation, but they were waiting on a decision about Philip's adoption. Um, they agreed that there was no connection between the warrant and the adoption, but it's really complicated. The judge at the time of the writing had yet to rule and render a ruling, um, but Janice Miller knew that she would win the case. And while she knows that the whites will never be able to pay her fees, she is maintaining exact billing charges and she has a lot of civil suits in mind. All of this, though, was secondary to the well-being and pre present and future of Philip Andrew Taylor, who was now too short two months short of his third birthday and in, in, in psychological jargon, a very high-risk child. And essentially what was really on trial was the system. The adoption was reversed and the child did get to go home with for eight months. The lawyer was, uh, White's lawyer was lost in a legal thicket. Judges of the case were said to have withdrawn or to be out of town or gone fishing, but that the story when it, when it was written and they put it in the paper, um, they added an editor's note on the Sunday of its appearance, April 12, 1987, pointing out that the adoption had been ruled invalid, and after a flurry of legal skirmishing, Philip was returned to the white. The movie based on this horrific crime was called In a Child's Name. It was released November 17, 1991, and starred Valerie Bertinelli as Angela Cimarelli, because apparently Celeste White was not Italian enough. <laughs> Uh, Michael Ankian, who you may know as Sheriff Harry Truman from Twin Peaks, yes, uh, was Ken Taylor, and Christopher Maloney, with hair, yes, was Jerry Cimarelli, and then Louise Fletcher, who I know from Flowers in the Attic, but she was also one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Same uh, was Jean Taylor, and then Carla Tamborelli was Teresa, who I know her from somewhere, and I and I looked at her IMDb history, and I mean she is like in one or twos of episodes, but I know I know her for something more concrete, and I just can't figure out what it is. And uh, Mr. Uh, Taylor, the the dad, the dad or the grandpa, yeah, was was the other Jeff Lebowski in the Big Lebowski. I've never seen the Big Lebowski, so I can't uh, really. Yeah. You should watch it. It's good. Mm. Uh, so the movie starts by panning over a wall full of pictures of Valerie Bertinelli growing up. I imagine that Andrea has the same wall in her house. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> and then the camera pans over to Christopher Maloney with a full head of hair laying under a sink. It's shocking. There are a lot of things in this movie that are distressing. 
but Elliot Stabler with a full head of hair might be the most distressed. Mm-hmm. And Valerie, as Angela, comes into the kitchen and Christopher, as Jerry, smacks her on the ass. And next thing you know, they're full on making out in the kitchen. And then they're interrupted by Teresa, Angela's sister. Uh, she is there because her boyfriend is going to pick her up for work uh, because uh, Teresa still lives at home with her very Catholic parents. And she apparently had spent the night at her boyfriend's house the night before and did not get home until 2 a.m. So she didn't want to have to see her Catholic mother and explain that. Um, the next scene is all of them in a bowling alley because, of course, that's what you do apparently in New Jersey is you go bowling. And uh, Teresa shows up and tells, tells Angela that Ken has gotten divorced. And has officially proposed to her. But do you think it's time to introduce her or introduce him to mom and dad? And Teresa says that they will, but she's still not what sure what to do about his daughter. So we find out that he has a child at that point too. So we are at uh, Teresa and Angela's parents' house, and they are all dressed up to meet the fancy doctor. But he's a dentist. I mean, that's like, I am your dentist. That's like right above a chiropractor. I mean, let's not get all excited. Although he did pick her up in like a super uh, sports car and very fancy. And when he pulled up, she said, do you want to meet my uh, my sister and her husband? And he's like, no, no, I don't have time for that. Get in the car. So that should have been like strike number one or red flag number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're all dressed up. And uh, Angela has purchased a like number one sister necklace for Teresa and presented to her. Uh, to say, can, you know, kind of congratulations on getting uh, engaged. It was very reminiscent of a uh, Sex in the City Carrie yes, type of like necklace. Yes, it was like a Carrie plate necklace, yes. Mm-hmm. So Ken shows up, and he's very handsome. He does not have a receding hairline. <laughs> he no. has a full head of hair. Yes. Almost as much as uh, Elliot Stapler. Yes. And that's what I'm going to call him. Yep. So they're all sitting at the table talking about all of their sports achievements. Uh, Philip the brother... And uh, Jerry Cimarelli both played football and baseball and all of these other sports and were great at it. Uh, Ken was more of a, a book guy, so he's very self-deprecating. He keeps everybody laughing. Uh, and they are, uh, Ken and Teresa are very affectionate towards each other. But at one point, he is kissing Teresa's hand and he looks over at Angela and just kind of stares gives at her, her. Gives her the evil eye, yeah. and it's really weird. Oh, I wouldn't say it's evil. I'd say it's more, uh, like, levicious. Like, he's yeah. like wants to, okay. wants that to be her hand. Well, evil eye can just still be like, mm. you look shady, dude. He announces that he is he's there not to ask for her father's hand in marriage, but her family's hand in marriage. And they all agree, and everybody's celebrating, and all of a sudden the grandfather comes down the stairs and they're all speaking in Italian. He's very agitated. Uh, and he sees Ken and starts freaking out at him and, uh, apparently saying, you know, evil and, and all of this other stuff it's about like him. he knew. Yeah. And then they rush him upstairs and we never see grandpa again. No, <laughs> he just came down to make that declaration. Yep. And then he went back upstairs. He's gone. The next scene they, they show Ken visiting his daughter. And we find out uh, from a conversation with his ex-wife that he is, in fact, still in love with her. He admits to it. And they end up sleeping together. And Teresa is at home waiting from, uh, for him. And what he does is 
instead of going home, he actually goes to a strip club and calls Teresa from outside the strip club uh, and makes up this excuse about going to uh, visit his daughter and ended up falling asleep and all of this other stuff. And uh, Teresa is not here for his shit. She tells him that he does not want to mess with an Italian Italian woman. So um, at first I thought she would actually stick up for herself, but not the case. Uh, and he goes inside and the strippers all know his name. <laughs> so that's always a good sign. Uh, the next thing he sends Teresa's mother some flowers, you know, trying to win her over. Uh, and we have a weird scene where Teresa and Ken are both at work and she's still upset with him. Uh, and she goes walking by and he is working on an elderly patient and she's got like a mouthful of water and he's just staring at Teresa while she's walking past in like slow motion. Um, and he goes to find her and starts making out with her and just leaves this old lady with a mouthful of crap. And they end up like doing it right there in the, he really is the dentist from Little Chuck Horse. <laughs> like Dr. Giggles. Uh, so the next scene is at their wedding. He is outside of the church waiting for his family uh, and his parents show up in a RV, which is they don't have a car. They just have an RV that they drive around. And his his family, his brother has not shown up because apparently he's kind of a deadbeat and had to work. So he couldn't, uh, couldn't make it for the wedding. He said, you know how your brother is. That was their excuse for why he wasn't there. And Angela comes out to find him and he asks her for a kiss and tells her how beautiful she is. And he kind of lingers just a little bit too Gross. long. Yeah. Yeah. So his parents are very standoffish. And during the wedding, they want to know if all Italians kiss all this much because they're disgusted by how much the families all kiss each other. And it's then that we discover that he has actually been married twice before. So, Surprise! yeah, so cut to uh, the honeymoon, and it is actually Celeste and her father that go to the airport to pick Teresa up in the movie, and she doesn't get off the plane, so they track her down and find out that she is in the hospital, uh, that she has been beaten up on her honeymoon, and that is why she hasn't come back. So uh, Celeste and her father take off for Acapulco to go see her, and they walk into the hospital, and I will have to say that the makeup department been a little overboard just a little bit yeah it didn't even look like bruises it just looked like bad makeup mm -hmm. so uh the police say that ken had done it and Teresa says that no that they were in fact robbed we know that he's worried because he stopped shaving that's how we know that he's worried about his wife oh, <laughs> because he's we're... no longer the clean cut guy that he was gotcha uh and Did he, he looked down a lot was he thinking no he wasn't okay. he does not subscribe to the beverly hills 90210 school of acting okay uh but yeah he walks into the, the room he's all panicked talks about uh, how you know tells the case that that really happened that or what they claim happened that they were robbed and they knocked him out and while he was knocked out they just beat the crap out of Teresa. and angela is also not buying his shit. He, she is not here for it. So she starts threatening him. And Teresa's very upset. She says that, you know, she went to bed and woke up in the hospital. So she thinks that, um, that it was in fact Robert. While they're there, Angela calls Ken's ex-wife and asks if Ken has ever hit her. And she first says, why, what's happened? Uh, and she explains that Teresa's in the hospital and was beaten up. And his ex-wife says that, no, he never hit her. Uh, when they get back into town, 
um, and Teresa's in the hospital and for some reason is spending a lot of time at Teresa's parents' house and Francis feels the need to play mediator because, again, Angela just knows what has happened and doesn't think that he should be around. Her her detector is going off. Mm-hmm. It's under all that hair. It is. Uh, he gets in trouble for stealing money from work. So he gets fired and he tries to justify it by saying that he pulled from the profits because he wanted to take Teresa on a very fancy honeymoon. Uh, he comes home and he does some coke, as you do when you get fired. And then he starts working out, which is a great combination. And Angela comes outside and reveals that she is pregnant. And he asks if she wants to keep it. And then tries to get her to celebrate with a bump of coke. What every pregnant woman wants. Yep. I mean, well, I was going to say it is the 80s, but... I don't remember. I mean, I was like 13. I didn't really do bumps of coke. Well, me either, but I just meant that, you know, it just seemed like a lot in the 80s were yeah. about lines of coke. And then we cut to the baby as uh, brand new, fresh, uh, just been born, and Ken's mom moves in with them uh, after the baby's born and acts like a nursemaid. So we already see her doting. She comes in, takes the baby from her, tells her to stay in bed. Uh and so she almost is, she's very possessive of the baby. Mm-hmm. And Teresa reveals that she has named the baby Philip after her brother. Yeah. And there's no brother in this movie, is there? Yeah. Oh, okay. it's just not in very many scenes. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then that is when Angela reveals that she is also pregnant, which that, yeah, I guess that would be about six months difference. Yeah. Uh, the next scene we see Teresa sees some numbers on the phone bill, not a cell phone bill, a regular phone bill. We used to have those Hello, people. 80s. And she calls them and it answers and it's and it's obviously a 1-800-SEX number. So. Yes. Yeah, that used to be a thing too. Like, remember USA, like, Up All Night used to have an yes. obscene amount of 1-800 numbers. Yeah. It was either that or you called the psychics to talk to the yes. psychic hotline, Dion Warwick. Mm-hmm. Kind of to backtrack, there were a pair of earrings that uh, Teresa's grandmother had given her for her wedding. And uh, they were among the things that were stolen while they were in Acapulco. And Teresa finds the earrings in Kenneth's briefcase. briefcase, Because for some reason, he always leaves it on the counter open. Even though that's where he stores his cocaine and the earrings that he steals. He's not good at life. No, he's not. Uh, He comes home and figures out that the earrings are no longer in his briefcase. And he stands outside the sliding glass door. like the creepiest scene ever mm-hmm. like Teresa's looking going through the house um and, you know she puts the baby to bed and she's walking through the house kind of searching for him because she thought she'd heard him and she can't find him and then it cuts to him standing outside the sliding glass door just like pressed up against it like a goddamn serial killer he is a murderer true uh she puts the earrings on and stands in front of him while he's working out which is always a good time to confront somebody and he says, let's go to bed. And the baby starts screaming. And then all of a sudden we hear her screaming and large, loud thunks. I always remember that he says something about, like, like the baby's, she says something about the baby crying. And he's like, well, he'll fall asleep to the music. And she's like, what music? And he starts, like, beating the fuck out of her. And it's yeah. like, ugh. And did you notice that she laid him on his stomach? He laid, she laid the baby on his stomach to mm-hmm. go to sleep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, 80s. There's, you know what? There's no right or wrong way, I guess. To... Nope, the right way is the way I do it. <laughs> that is 
laying your children on their backs. Okay. <laughs> I don't need somebody laying their child on their stomach and then suing us. We don't have any money. This is true. Okay. Okay. What she says is right. <laughs> okay. So after all of the screaming and the thunking, uh, all of a sudden, Kenneth, covered in blood, mm-hmm. calls the sex line. Because that's what you do. That's what you do. You get all that testosterone flowing from beating the shit out of your wife. You gotta, you gotta talk to some uh, nasty, nasty lady on the other line to mm-hmm. relieve all of that pressure. And then he cleans everything up. And when I say cleans everything up, I mean like the cops talk about it just all the time about how clean their house is. They want to know who he uses as a cleaning person and all of this other stuff. Right. It's, it's crazy. Ken calls Angela and proactively calls Angela and tells her that Teresa is a drug addict and he dropped her off at the, uh, the airport. And that she's going to get treatment. Um, and Teresa's like, well, I'm coming. Or not Teresa. Angela's like, well, I'm coming over. But Ken's already gone. And he takes uh, little baby Philip over to his parents' house in Marion, Indiana. And guess what? Angela or Teresa is in the trunk. So Angela is not, ha- again, not having any of Ken's shit. So she goes to the police. And the police are very hesitant to to investigate. And then we see Ken drop the dead body off wrapped in carpet on the side of the road. No attempt to hide it at all. Like literally yeah, just pulls over it's just... and he's like, Oh, this seems like a good place. And just kind of drops her off. And then he recites scripture and then he forgets it. <laughs> he forgets the, all of the passage and it's just like, Oh, fuck it. Amen. Uh, and then he goes, <laughs> he goes and works out. And for some reason, when he works out, he does Lamaze breathing. Uh, cop decides to investigate and comes over, and like I said, he, remar- he remarks that how clean the house is. Uh, he also remarks that considering how much dental trouble Teresa has, she didn't bother to take her toothbrush with her. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, the body is discovered, and her family comes to identify it, and it's actually pretty brutal. They, uh, All of them are there for some reason. They all decide to go down and identify the body, and Angela walks in and sees the necklace that she gave Teresa uh laying on the the with all the remains and things like that uh everybody is obviously devastated and then we get this nice scene where they kind of juxtaposition uh kind of the men and all these women's life like we see jerry and angela and jerry's very comforting Mm -hmm. uh and he's comforting angela as she cries and then we go to their parents house and the father uh, is sitting there with the mother's head in his lap and he's just stroking her hair. And then he's like, you've got to eat, you've got to eat. And he goes to fix her something to eat. And it's kind of in the kitchen where uh, he breaks down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, obviously they're positioning how well these men treat their wives as compared to how piece of yeah. shit that Ken is. So. Right. Uh, and for some reason, Ken always hangs out in gray sweatpants and a gray tank top. He was doing the sweatpants, sweatpants challenge far earlier than anybody else. Maybe maybe that's what dentists wore before scrubs. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really remember what my dentists were when I was a child. Uh, and then they come and bring him down to the station and tell him he's a suspect. And he is actually surprised by this news. <gasps> Surprise! Yeah. Uh, and his parents show up with to his house with the baby. And are also surprised that the cops are there. And they're, they've decided, since the house is so clean, they can't find any evidence. Uh, they decide to spray luminol everywhere to test for blood. And they turn off the lights. This was a TV freaking moment. Well, this was the first time this happened. Oh. This wasn't with the parents. Okay. So 
Um, they've gone everywhere. They've sprayed all this luminol. I'm assuming it must have been a new technology because they made a really big deal, deal about, about it. it yeah. Then. Uh, and they turn off the lights and, and it's dark and all of a sudden all of their faces light light up. And you like just a see freaking Christmas tree. Yeah, you just see this these drag marks and they follow it up to the bedroom where the workout equipment is and then right. you see it like all over the dumbbells and things like that. Uh and obviously Angela wants they call him Andrew, they don't call him Philip. Right. So she wants Andrew and the parents want Andrew as well. Uh, so his parents decide to stay in town. And for some reason, they stay there. They're allowed to stay in his house. I mean, isn't it a crime scene? Shouldn't that kind of be cordoned off for a while? But whatever. You would think. Uh, so his parents stay at his house. They get the baby to sleep. And they go up to his bedroom to sleep. You know. Which murder. is also weird. Why Why are you not sleeping There's in a guest, guest bedroom? bedroom yeah. Uh, they turn out the lights. And the whole bedroom lights up. I forever, that is embedded in my memory for I, the rest of did we, my was it, whole life. Was it on the podcast that we talked? Like, this is one of the very, very first memories I have about watching a um, a made-for-TV true crime movie yes. was this scene. Like, I hardly remembered anything else about the whole movie, but I remember, remember this, this scene. Yeah. That is effective movie making. Yes. And then that's how, like, the first part ended was that the room got yeah. lit up and then, like, you had to watch the next part the next night. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Ken is in jail and he tells his parents to go back to Indiana, uh, but they say they actually want to be near him. Um, they say they're going to leave with Andrew. Uh, well, they say they're going to take Andrew with them. So Angela goes to court and the judge decides that they are going to split custody. And they talk to the second wife, like in, as part of the investigation, they so, show the scene where they interviewed the second wife and she talks about the first wife and how he left her when she was pregnant. Uh, but she says that, you know, he never touched her, that he wasn't a great guy, but he never once hit her uh, and all this other stuff. And I'm trying to figure out, I mean, that's not something that just all of a sudden appears. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a pattern of behavior. So I, I'm just wondering why she's defending him. Is she like sucking from the teat? Is he giving her all this money or something? I don't know. I was going to say, it's probably a money thing. And Ken ends up calling her after she uh, has talked to the police and she tells him, you know, I stuck to the story. Uh, I did tell them about your first wife. Um, and funny, like I'm watching this scene and it, whoever the actress is, is not waiting in between her questions. <laughs> she just <laughs> keeps talking. I'm like, hmm, I'm not quite sure who, you know, who's asking anything because nobody's getting an answer here. Maybe that was her first role, and that's how she got her side card. She just had to say quick few lines. Not very well. No. Uh, so Angela and Jerry have their baby. It's a girl. Uh, and this scene, you know, so Valerie Bertinelli just has a little bit of sweat, but otherwise she looks gorgeous. She is the queen of made-for-TV movies. <laughs> and she's pushing, and the doctor tells her to stop and says, oh, one tiny push. And she goes, eh, and the baby's out. And the baby's super clean. I'm like, what the? Come on, guys. They used all of their makeup budget on Angela. Or no, on Teresa. On and Teresa. They couldn't spare the chocolate syrup and jelly to make her look. Make the baby look yeah. actually like a new baby. Right. Uh, so in prison, Ken befriends a guard, hinting that he's got money, you know, just hanging around. So. Don't we all? Yeah. Uh, the baby's name is Gina, and Gina comes home. And 
Angela's already back to her pre-pregnancy weight. Amazing. Yeah. Telling you, Valerie Bergnelli, she is a queen. (laughs) Yeah. So Marilyn, who is the second wife, comes to the police station. Uh, Again, they ask if he had ever hit her, and she's like, no, but he did try to kill me once. Oh. All casual. (laughs) Uh, but she, uh, she says that he, she thought that he deserved a second chance. And that's what, uh, you call gaslighting. And sometimes goodbye is a second chance. Yeah. In the jail cell, um, Ken has a picture of him, Teresa and Angela, and it says dead bitch over Angela. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, Ken's parents refused to give up custody uh, even though they raised a murder and obviously are not very good at their jobs. I will say that uh, even though dude was the sheriff on Twin Peaks and he wasn't a bad dude on Twin Peaks, like he was, he, a, good dude he was a good dude on Twin Peaks, but he plays bad dude very well. Like He does, yes. He really knows how to take that psychopath to the next level. Uh, the state won't allow... His exes claim that he tried to kill her because he was never charged. He never went to police with it. So they won't allow that to be admitted into court. And Ken actually testifies on his behalf, which if you know anything about uh, murders, you know most of them don't do that. Uh, He tells the corrections officer he's got a lot of stuff in his house that can be sold and tells him where the key is hidden. And uh, he ends up being found guilty. And the mom stands up and says to to Jerry and to Angela, you ruined my son. You won't ruin my grandson. And the judge pounds a gavel and tells them to stop the disruption. So the custody custody arrangement ends up being six months to Angela, uh, or I'm sorry, 10 months to Angela. And then from July 1st to August 31st, uh, Andrew is to stay with Ken's parents. So, So that was the same. That was the same. Yes. And then Ken likes to call Angela up and just yell at her and then hang up on her. But he's allowed to because he's befriended the corrections officer or the guard. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of what the psychologist says, Angela wants to defy the court off uh, the court order that Andrew has to visit visit the prison. And I keep wanting to call him Stabler. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even have on here. Stabler's not happy. <laughs> it's not Stabler. Jerry it's, it's is fine. not happy. We know this is Jerry or Elliot. It just depends on the day. Uh, so the guard ends up going into uh, Ken's house and takes what he wants and then comes back and sneaks a key in a book. And Ken tries to escape. And he like literally he opens like the guard walks by. He's been go- he's gone for like two seconds. Ken opens the door and tries to run out. But, <gasps> shocker. The exterior doors of the jail are locked. He didn't think it through when no. he got out of the cell. He didn't. So he gets to the door, he can't get out, he turns around, and then there's a, another guard, a different guard standing there. Surprise! Uh, the We're back in the courtroom. Uh, the judge tells Angela that they must follow the court order. So they do have to turn custody over to Ken's parents. Uh, and then Jean writes a letter to the court saying that Teresa was a druggie and a sexual abuser. Uh, and they get a whole Angela and Jerry get a hold of this and see it while they're over at their parents' house. And then the parents say that, you know, because Angela doesn't work, it's just Jerry's, Jerry's $25,000 a year salary. Uh, so it's hard for them to pay for all of this to fight it. And Angela's parents say that they'll help pay. And then Angela reveals that she wants to hire a female attorney 
but the one that they go to, Miss Janice Miller, is going to be expensive. And I love how in this scene, like, Janice, like, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be time-consuming. You know, I've got a lot of other cases. And Angela keeps saying, well, you know, we want you to take this and explains everything. She's like, oh, okay, well, I'll go ahead and take it. And then uh, Angela the whole time is looking at Jerry. He's like, you convinced me. <laughs> no. And I think Jerry's like, Jesus Christ, this bitch is just spending my money. No, he wouldn't say that. What did I sign guy. on for? So Janice Miller decides to take the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the interim, we find out that his parents have taken that letter. Uh, Ken's parents have taken that letter to a local attorney who is also a member of their church. Uh, and and he, you know, goes through the motions and gets them. Nothing. Oh, yeah, because you're going to say something. Oh, he, he helps them adopt baby Andrew. Although I was going to say that I don't know who plays the attorney guy, their attorney guy mm-hmm. in this movie, but he's smarmy as fuck. He is smarmy. And I don't like because he's got red hair. Right. Like, don't make the redheaded guy the smarmy guy. Right. Uh, and you hear him talking to the judge, and he's the judge is like, well, they're outstanding members of uh, of our community. They're very active in the church. Whoa, oh, yes, I'll go ahead and sign this. Right. So, um, and then that's when they reveal to Angela. Angela calls him to say, hey, we're getting ready to leave. Uh, you know, what time should we meet you? Where should we meet? And then she's like, oh, we're not coming, bitch. <laughs> Well, they weren't allowed to say bitch on TV in the oh, 80s, yeah, so, or in 91. And so Jean says, you know, we've adopted him, so there's no need for you to come. And obviously, bitch, they immediately, <laughs> immediately head to Indiana to fight the adoption. Um, they're in court, and the judge says that they're basically, he, where am I trying to say this? Okay, so first thing they do is they go to the courthouse to speak to the judge that ruled on the case or to that sign the adoption papers, he is fishing for the weekend. Uh, and so another judge sends them up to the welfare office uh, and there's an attorney there. They explain everything to him. And it is James Cromwell, by the way, of babe Aww. fame. He's also King Philip in the movie, the queen about uh, princess Diana's death. All right. So, well, he's in a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, yes, James he's freaking in, Cromwell, he's James for God's Cromwell. sake. He's in lots of things. So, uh, he gets a judge to issue an order to basically stay the adoption. Uh, so, they show up to Gene's house, Gene and whatever Gene's husband's name is. Uh, he likes to wear his pants up to his nipples. So, I don't remember what the his name is. The other Jeff Lebowski. But his name's not Everett on the show. It's something like... Like well, then we're gonna like then we're gonna call him the other Jeff Lebowski. All right. Uh, so they show up to the house to take custody of Andrew, and he does. Everett won't let anybody in the house, and so eventually, uh, James Cromwell. That's what we're gonna call him. James Cromwell threatens to bust the door down, and he finally opens the door and uh, relinquishes Andrew. And they put him in the car, and Angela's like, wait a second, I thought I was getting him. Like, no, that's not the deal. You have to go to a foster family while this is all worked out. And so uh, they're in court. They're explaining everything to the judge. Uh, The judge is like, both of you need to just write up some briefs, and then I'll make my decision. And after court's over, they end up talking, Angela talks to a reporter 
Is this when they're having the party? Yes. In the... Okay. So after this judge makes his decree, they head back home and they have like a GoFundMe, but in, per- in person. Yes. So well, there's a, a fundraiser uh, for baby Andrew's case and all of these people are there. And there is a reporter for the New York Times. Peter Moss. That uh, seeks Angela's, you know, basically hunts her down to ask her about the case. And she explains everything to him. And he says, I hope you're being honest with me because this is going to make one hell of a case or one hell of a, um, an article. And um, they head back to Indiana. And just like uh, Andrea was talking about, uh, you know, the ju- there's a lot of shady stuff happening at the courthouse. And the judge ends up uh, canceling the adoption, but then also takes the baby away from the foster parents. So they go back to, the uh, baby goes back to live with Ken's parents. And just as Angela is about ready to give up, the article is printed. And Janice reads the article and makes a call to the courthouse where this judge is sitting, basically, uh, waiting for these these two arguments about who deserves custody and she explains to him that the it's a very long movie no i see you checking your watch i wasn't checking my watch it just was telling me that i needed to do 230 steps to to get 250 this hour mine tells me it's time to breathe (laughs) look i'm not doing that already gosh darn it janice calls the courthouse and explains uh how the article presents the judge that it does not uh, characterize him very well. Thought you might want to take a look at this article yes. that's been written about you, sir. And magically, the judge then rules that because the attorney didn't bother to notify the guardians in New Jersey that the adoption is not legal and that the um, custody should go back to Angela. Uh, obviously, Jean and... Jean's husband <laughs> decided to appeal the this other decision. Jeffrey Lebowski <laughs> decided to appeal this decision. Uh, so custody is not granted immediately. Um, but it gets to, I loved this part. It gets to the appellate court and, and all of their church shows up and everybody's in the gallery and they're all cheering and, you know, murmuring and everything. And the appellate judge is like, this is ridiculous. We're not fighting for you. And custody shall remain with, well, it's the whites, but it's the Cimarellis. Custody shall remain with the Cimarellis. And uh, they go and pick Andrew up and take him back home. And they live happily ever after. Well, the movie ends with Angela picking Andrew up and then flying home. And the whole neighborhood is there to greet them. Arte. Yeah. Apparently they thought it was a GoFundMe again. (laughs) Uh, The movie ends with Andrew and Gina, who is their baby, going to bed. And a photo of Teresa is on Andrew's nightstand, and it says, and then they have, like, a little scrolling across. It says, Andrew was legally adopted by Angela and Jerry, and Kenneth's appeal was denied, and he lost all parental rights. And that is In a Child's Name, a that movie was... that was roughly 42 hours long. <laughs> that's, was that getting me back for the Billionaire Boys Club? Yes, that's exactly what it was. Or small, I mean, small sacrifices wasn't was about that long too. But man, those I'm telling you, back they don't have them on TV like they used to. But miniseries, or they used to call made for TV events, you know, used to be quite the thing in the late '80s. Well, even 
all of 80s and into the 90s before Lifetime kind of really came along and kind of, I guess, swooped those up and then they didn't really have them on normal ABC or NBC, CBS type stuff anymore. No, they don't. Now it's just all sitcoms and dramas. Yes. They really don't have made-for-TV movies anymore. No. And then Lifetime likes to wrap that shit up in two hours. Yep. We're not drawing that out. Chop, chop. We gotta get it done. But, yeah, so... That was, like I said, that was one of my first, I remember going to the Rock Island Public Library and checking out the book after I watched the movie, and because that luminol scene stuck with me <laughs> enough that I wanted to read the book. And can we talk about Louise Fletcher's wig in this movie? Oh, it was horrible. So And bad. I was trying to figure out if it was supposed to be horrible, uh, just to kind of show how uptight yeah. they were. But... I think it was supposed to be horrible. Right. Like that tight curl. Yeah. You know. And it was it was just a solid mass, mass. of gray yeah. for all. It was mm-hmm. horrible. Everybody had really big hair. Did this. you not own a comb or a pick? Something to brush out that just a little bit? I don't know. Anyway. So, yes, that was uh, Louise Fletcher was definitely wearing a terrible wig. Because I think her real hair was like, you know, with the flowers in the attic where she had it like pulled back and, you know, it didn't look like. Maybe somebody put tar in her hair. Maybe. Excellent question. Wasn't a question. Oh, statement. Excellent statement. (laughs) There, I'll fix that. All right. That's all all I got. This is like over an hour long. Good God. Eh, it won't be so bad once we edit for our. Should we say goodbye or are you just going to. No! Yeah. Oh, I was oh. gonna bring up my little sticky note here. Oh, that I it has you were our... just like, we're done. I'm done with you. I'm not sure when next week's case will be yet. I'm trying to think of one that's got a really long movie for you to watch. <laughs> Why? Why? Are it's you... gonna be Angels in America. <laughs> oh. Okay. Do you remember? Have you ever watched that movie? Yes, I that, have. That was on HBO. That was like eight hours long. Yes. I'm trying to think. That's not a true crime. So don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on all of your favorite podcatchers. Apple uh, Podcasts has uh, reviews, so please give us a five-star review. You know, everyone loves them, even us. Um, You can check us out on Instagram at Based on a True Crime Story. (laughs) We're on Twitter, Based on a True Cruff One. And our email based on a true crime story at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook um, as well. So until next time, we will um, be back with another crime and TV movie or maybe major, a real movie. Maybe a real movie counterpart. But there's a lot of TV movies to get through before yeah. we get to a real movie. Anyway. Hey, don't you judge. I'll pick my movies how I want to pick them. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye.